Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 1 to 31. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. Then he said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my father, David. For he said, since the day I brought my people out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built for my name to be there. Nor have I chosen anyone to be the leader over my people, Israel. But now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there. And I've chosen David to rule my people, Israel. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well to have this in your heart. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple, but your son, who is your own flesh and blood, he is the one who will build the temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised, and I have built a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have placed the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people of Israel. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now he had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and placed it in the center of the outer court. He stood on the platform and then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant, David, my father. With your mouth, you have promised, and with your hand, you have fulfilled, as it is today. Now, Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant, David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. It is if only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me according to my law as you have done. And now, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David come true. But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord, my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. When a man wrongs his neighbor and is required to take an oath and he comes and swears the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing down on his own head what he has done. Declare the innocent not guilty and so establish his innocence. 
When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and confess your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to them and their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when enemies besiege them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come. And when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people Israel, each one aware of his afflictions and pains and spreading out his hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place Forgive and deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart, for you alone know the hearts of men, so that they will fear you and walk in your ways all the time they live in the land you gave our fathers. Uh, amen. Good morning to you all. Uh, today's message is the second one uh, on the topic of labor prompted by love. Uh, which is our second sermon series of the year based on the three virtues of faith, hope, and love as detailed in our church key verses in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. Quite a mouthful, actually. Um, after spending three weeks on work produced by faith, we started talking about love's motive force. Last time, we were moved by Jacob's um, endearing and enduring uh, romantic love for Rachel, uh, how he worked seven years for her hand in marriage, but because he was so in love with her, the total time seemed only like the passing of a few days. Unfortunately, that love did not characterize Jacob's relationship with uh, his uncle Laban, who deceived Jacob to extrude an extra seven, day, seven years of work by switching the older sister Leah with Rachel. It also did not fuel Jacob's relationship with Leah um, as attested to by the names she gives the four sons that she uh, bore Jacob. Hers was an unrequited love uh, that haunts the entire familial narrative. Um, I wanted to move out of the realm of romantic love and consider a different type of love relationship. Um, but we have probably have to set it up a, a little bit. Uh, the main subject matter of, for today is uh, Solomon's dedication of the temple that he built uh, for the Lord. My title, um, A Building of Love, is, uh, has a twofold meaning, or I intended to have a twofold meaning. Uh, first, the building process, the work itself, was an act of love. Right? It was an expression of love. Second, it was a building in which love for God could be expressed through prayer and repentance. It also was a way for God to love his people through grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Uh, the selected passage is comprised of an introductory speech that Solomon makes uh, to the people at the dedication of the temple, uh, followed by a prayer of supplication. 
um, by Solomon. Uh, in terms of message organization, uh, I'll divide it into the following uh, two major sections. Uh, so the first part of today will be uh, focused on the idea of built with love. So the first 17 verses, introduction and some of the prayer. Um, Solomon is, we'll talk about how he built this temple with his heart, with his hands, right? With, with his all, built with love. And then the second part would be um, built for love. The purpose of the building, the purpose of the temple was uh, a love relationship between God and his people, God and the Israelite, God and Solomon, God and the uh, his servant. They could experience uh, God's faithful and forgiving love uh, for them. Uh, let's commence with built with love. Right? So the building itself um, was a labor of love. Uh, Solomon put his all into uh, preparing the house of God. Solomon put his best resources, his best efforts, and planning into its construction. Uh, he wanted to show how great God was, in essence, um, as well as how great God was to the house of David, as well as how great Israel had become because of God's grace. It was a grand plan, the project of a lifetime. Not only was it costly and consuming, uh, it also became renowned. Uh, Solomon did not limit himself to the resources found in his own country uh, by amassing a reputation of wisdom and wealth, as well as a vast army. Um, Solomon made alliances and expended much international capital. He imported the best timber, as well as gold and other precious um, materials and metals to provide the furnishings uh, and the aesthetics of the edifice. Um, he procured the most skilled craftsmen from within and without his country. Only the best for God was his approach. Uh, the sheer scale of value, quantity, and artisanship that Solomon employed was uh, frankly breathtaking. Uh, the amount of gold and bronze and cedar that was used um, bespoke of Solomon's esteem for God's dwelling. Even the animal sacrifices that, uh, that were involved in the lead up to uh, and the actual dedication of the temple were so numerous, they couldn't keep track. They couldn't count it because there were so many sacrifices. It was a God-sized celebration. Solomon went all out to express the fullness of love for God um, in his heart. And in the introductory address, uh, Solomon focuses on God's faithfulness. How faithful, how true, how God had made the promises uh, fulfilled, how God had come through big time. Uh, Solomon praises God who fulfilled the promises made to his father David. God had chosen David to be the leader of his people. God had selected Jerusalem to be the location of the temple where he would allow his name to dwell. And the gravity of the moment, the seriousness, what's really happening, what's really at stake, and none of this is lost on Solomon. Uh, he knows that none of this would have been possible without God's bountiful grace. Even though he, had, you know, Solomon had a lot of power, a lot of affluence, 
And he, as well as the people, had worked really hard. They'd labored uh, fully. At bottom, it really was the faithfulness of God that was to be credited. Faithfulness of God. It was God's love uh, for David that was the foundation of this amazing day. It was God's love which had plucked that no-name, harp-strumming shepherd boy from an obscure family residing in a podunk hamlet and then had installed him in the highest halls of power and honor, promising him an enduring dynasty. Uh, this divine love had prompted David's devotion, David's obedience, David's service. What was truly unique and especially marvelous uh, was God's promise to David that one of his own scions would continually occupy the throne of Israel if David's posterity were careful in walking before the Lord. Uh, I think Solomon realizes the singular nature of such a divine guarantee. God was doing something unprecedented. We use that word today all the time, right? Unprecedented things. Like but this, this promise of a dynasty, right? Uh, David's progeny was unprecedented. And basking in that extraordinary grace, in verse 16, Solomon requests a renewal of that promise, an ongoing fulfillment by the faithful God holding true for Solomon um, and his time. Yeah. So the torch, this, uh, this burning torch of David's heartfelt love for God, along with the task of building the temple, had now passed to Solomon. Right? And Solomon came to share and display a similar if not even more fervent in some ways, love and devotion for God. You know, what David had uh, experienced more um, in an intensely personal walk with God, you know, Solomon multiplied it on an international scale. Yeah, many more came to know the splendor, the glory, the name uh, of the Lord. So what David had started, Solomon took to the next level. It was in a sense as much a realization of David's vision as it was Solomon's vision. Yeah, indeed, uh, I think this uh, actually reads to me like a story of a loving son uh, showing his filial devotion to his parents by uh, like custom designing and building their retirement home or more of a mansion. Uh, except that the house that Solomon uh, built was not for his earthly father, David, but for their mutual heavenly father, God in heaven. Not only did it demonstrate Solomon's love for God, it also was literally an act of devotion by a child to his parent. Um, the desire to build a temple for the God of Israel was first cherished by King David. Uh, after he was installed and established as the king of Israel, and after completing his own palace to reside, David is struck by how God, the one who made it all this possible, basically had uh, abided for like 400 years uh, in, in a tent with uh, fancy curtains, yeah, albeit with made of consecrated fabric, uh, also known as the tabernacle. And David uh, knew the incongruity and wanted to do something about it. So he asks the prophet Nathan to consult God. Is it okay if I build you a temple, Lord? 
uh, God responds by saying, I am pleased with that desire. You have the right heart. But because of the bloodshed that David was engaged in due to the many wars and, and battles that he fought, David was kind of disqualified from building the holy dwelling of God. And so that task was promised to occur during Solomon's reign, right? But it was David who had the idea in the first place, and it was he who generously seeded the materials and provided Solomon with the blueprints David had discerned from the Lord. Of course, Solomon added to that, but it really was started uh, by David. Yeah, so by executing his father's wish, Solomon was loving right, David's uh, legacy, his memory, his heart, right, uh, as well as establishing for himself the continuity of that uh, devotion to God. So, yeah, I was thinking, is there like a, a, an example, a counterpart that we could talk about? And, uh, you know, is there a family that has this kind of like uh, continuation, this, this transference, this, you know, fulfillment, even like uh, expansion of like a, a vision, a dream, a hope? Um, you know, think of the Wesley family. Uh, Susanna Wesley, a godly mother, had many children, and uh, from she prayed for them every day. And, and from their uh, ranks came John Wesley, Charles Wesley, right? famous Christians. But I didn't want to uh, uh, stay with that, so I, I went back again to the sports world. Somehow, <laughs> sports is showing up uh, in most of the 2021 sermons. And you know, if you th think of like a family dynasty in sports, what do you think of? I'm going to ask Brother Matt, who, they, who am I thinking of, Matt? Who am I going to talk about? The Manning family. Yes, thank you, thank you. The, the amazing uh, Manning family of quarterbacks, professional NFL quarterbacks. Um, there is, uh, of course, far, the father, Archie Manning. He was uh, a famous college like icon, uh, football uh, quarterback. And then he played like 10 years for the New Orleans Saints. And then the, I think the oldest brother is Cooper, who was a star quarterback, but he had an injury or he had a, a problem with his back, and so he couldn't uh, pursue it, but he was really good. And then there's the famous Peyton Manning, which I know Sergi is a, is a fan of. I don't know why. Uh, and then there's um, Eli, Eli Manning of New York Giants football fame. Now, to get like one child, one person in a family into the NFL as a star quarterback that's crazy, right? But to have three people, right, father and two sons, um, you know, become like household names, right? That's really, really, that's like, you know, the odds are pretty, pretty crazy. But, and, and, you know, Peyton and Eli, both of them were number one picks out of college, both with, I think, two Super Bowl wins, Super Bowl MVPs, right? It's just like, you don't get that. You know, this is just kind of, you know, it's never going to, I don't think it's ever going to happen again. Uh, now, apparently Cooper's son, and they call him Arch, right? He's like 15, he's like 16 year old now, 15 year old in, in last year, and he's already a star, right? And uh, some have pegged him to be even better than his uncles, Peyton and Eli. Yeah. Anyway, so I thought, wow, quarterback football dynasty. There must be an illustration here I can use in my sermon. Archie was... Considered a great quarterback, um, respected, but his team 
was really bad, right? They, they didn't, they, they were like over 500, the winning percentage only once, no playoff appearances, right? All that stuff. But, you know, he never uh, got the glory. He never went to the Super Bowl. He never won MVP, that, that kind of thing, right? So I'm, but he's respected. So I'm salivating. I'm going, okay, that means Archie must have really wanted to pass on his dream to his kids. And so this unrealized kind of, you know, uh, desire, he must have like in, in, in pushed it on his, his sons for Super Bowl victory and Hall of Fame glory. And, you know, I it's totally like he lectured them and he must have practiced with them late into the night, you know, all this karate kid kind of, kind of stuff. I was hoping that I would find that kind of, you know, those kind of details. And so I was like researching it. And so I started researching and found this quote uh, from Archie Manning, the father. I don't think that's a goal that parents should have for their children, whatever sport it is, to be a professional athlete. As parents, we don't need to be the ones that push that. They have to be to like it. They have to like it and enjoy it and want to do it. And parents, we are just there to support them. It never was a goal to get Peyton in the NFL. And so even though he got there, it wasn't our goal to push Eli along to get to the NFL. They were motivated to play and get better, and they had a great work ethic. That's why they got there. My advice for parents is to support your children. Make sure they're having fun. Support them and be there for them. Give them encouragement. Make it a life lesson that along the way, they're learning to make good decisions and to do the right thing. What? <laughs> I go, this, this doesn't help my sermon. It's like the opposite message, right? That he's not even like... Just just let them have fun. And if they make it, great. You know, there's none of this like, you know, dy dynastic um, kind of uh, impressions. But then I thought, okay, no, it does help. It does help the sermon, right? The legacy that Archie must have passed on was not about the NFL or the Super Bowl glory, but about making good decisions and doing the right thing. And, and I think Peyton and Eli are considered real good guys in the NFL. Um, in the sports. So, you know, if we look at it that way, the illustration works. Yes? No? <laughs> Maybe? Okay. Well, let's next take a look at what Solomon uh, saw as the purpose of the temple built for love. Right? Sorry for you know, organizing my message with the prepositions, right? Built with love, built for love. Uh, in short, at least according to his prayer, uh, uh, Solomon saw the temple is a place of worship uh, and a love relationship between God and his people. It is built with love for the purpose of love. Uh, let's consider uh, at least one theme or a couple themes of the prayer. Let's zero in on uh, verses 18 to 21, where Solomon makes an insightful comment concerning the infinitude of God. Even though the temple, which had been built, was spectacular, Solomon rightly observes that even the highest heavens, quote, highest heavens cannot contain God. The temple was a paltry substitute for the heavenly courts. Uh, Solomon acknowledges that even the temple that had been constructed was, quote, magnificent and fitting to house the presence of God, quote, forever, in words that he uses back in verse 2. Solomon knew that God was so great, too great to be contained in a single dwelling, even one that expressed the best of who he was and the best of what Israel was. You know, Solomon knew full well that God actually had to stoop, if you will. Uh, he had to deign to inhabit the temple. It was God's grace that lent, he lent his presence to the Israelites in the first place. It was God's grace that uh, he would be willing to occupy the temple where people could come and worship. So this theme, you know, the grace of God, namely that God would show his great 
grace and mercy in inhabiting the temple, it kind of serves, I think, as a foundation for the rest of the prayer. Solomon asks that God would also recurrently condescend to give, to quote, give attention to his servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Yeah, Solomon knew that unless God paid attention and showed mercy, the temple was meaningless. No matter how grand or expensive the furnishings were without God's habitation, these would just be empty, inanimate, material things. But endued with God's spirit, this place could come alive. It would be a building in which God's love and holiness would be encountered. Solomon asks God to day and night, 24-7, quote, hear the supplications of Solomon and the Israelites. Solomon beseeches God to hear from heaven where God really dwells. And upon hearing, forgive the sins of the supplicant. Now Solomon then proceeds to provide a litany of potential reasons why a person would come to the temple uh, seeking God. These are the prayer requests that he makes. If I could have the slide. Uh, first, uh, in 22 to 23, uh, an adjudication of disputes uh, between neighbors. The next section is restoration from defeat, military uh, loss. And then uh, relief from drought is the third paragraph. And then um, kind of a larger category of misfortunes, right? deliverance from misfortunes uh, rounds out the last section uh, that we covered. There's actually a little bit more of the prayer that I didn't include because the text I thought was already long. So let's think about these each briefly. Uh, verses 22 to 23 is in regards to two disputant neighbors. Justice is what Solomon asks for. How important, right? How needful is justice in 21st century America? With, with systemic racial injustice alive and well, with insurrection and conspiracy theories running amok, with so many people pursuing and capitalizing on unjust gain and illegitimate, at least in a biblical sense, power. Uh, we definitely need our prayers to be suffused by God's justice. I think that'd be such a powerful expression of God's love for us if he would um, bless us with justice. Uh, the next uh, section envisions uh, military failure and even captivity. If an enemy has prevailed over them because the people have sinned, Solomon asks that God would attune his ear to their confession and bring the people back from ignominy and imprisonment. Uh, to me, this can be construed as an appeal to God's affection, bring them back, return them to the land, their home country, which God gave to them and their fathers. Remember the covenant, O Lord, you made with your favorite, Abraham the inheritance of an exceedingly good land to be held in an Israelite family for perpetuity. Yeah, give the repentant Israelites a homecoming, redolent of the father's loving embrace of the prodigal son. Uh, verses 26 to 27 uh, talk about drought, precipitated, pardon the pun, by the sin of the people. Upon crying out at this temple, Solomon pleads for forgiveness to fall from above, drenching the land 
parched by sin and rebellion. Right? I think David, Brother David in uh, Congregational Prayer captured that theme. Uh, God, uh, Solomon asked uh, that God would teach them the right way to live. You know, resource management, stewardship, proper concern for neighbor and stranger. These were all part of God's vision for the Israelites. They had shown favor and blessing. They had been shown favor and blessing so that they could in turn um, be holy instruments uh, of God. So when we walk in ignorance, beholden to the ways of this world, uh, the drought, right? the drought of love and joy and unity will be painfully felt. And again, isn't that, that America today? Divisiveness, partisanship, polarization, tribalism, uh, conflict on every level, every front. Families, communities, cities, states, regions, political parties, ethnicities, economic classes, genders, religions, all at each other's throats. Uh, threats of violence, vendettas, vengeance. Uh, there's such a drought of decency, uh, benefit of the doubt, respect, tolerance, let alone genuine love. Uh, so, you know, we need a major deluge of answered prayer. Um, and then the last part, uh, it delineates a number of agrarian catastrophes um, presumably due to the Israelites' unfaithfulness. The list reminds uh, of the 10 plagues visited upon um, Egypt. Famine, plague, blight, blight mildew, locusts, grasshoppers, right? hunger, and then the catch-all, whatever disaster or disease. Right? Solomon asks God to hear the prayers of any Israelite. Solomon can see that uh, there would come a time when they would be aware of the inflictions and pains that God visited upon them to warn them of their waywardness. In that instance, Solomon asks that the unholy hands that are lifted up to heaven catch the attention of the holy God to move the heart, move his heart to mercy. Solomon asks that God forgive and deal with each man according to all he does since you know his heart, for you alone know the hearts of men. It's verse 30. Uh, it's an astounding prayer, uh, and I don't think it was necessarily meant to even be exhaustive. And what is clear is that Solomon is certain that the Israelites will need God's love and forgiveness. You know, despite the uh, kind of the acme of civilization enjoyed at the time of the temple dedication, the depravity uh, of mankind is um, super obvious to Solomon. And that fundamental nature of human beings uh, would need to be remedied by the fundamental nature of God, love, right? The God of love, the God who loves, the God who is love. The one who loved David and now Solomon um, needed to act. Forgiveness, restoration, restitution. These would be the necessities. Right? This is what Solomon prays for repeatedly. And I think this is what makes um, his prayer so beautiful. Yeah. The prayer is certainly directed to God. Right? Uh, it represents uh, Solomon's adoration and ardor to the God of his father. 
But I think there's more. I think in the prayer, you see a different kind of love. So <laughs> this is kind of you know what I meant about a, a, a different type of, of love than romantic love. I think it shows that Solomon did not only love God and love his father, David, but this prayer reveals a love for his fellow Israelites, right? A wise love. This love also, um, love for the people, also was part of what prompted him in his labor. Right? So his, the prayer is intercession aimed at restoring the relationship between God and his people that would surely be broken from time to time. And Solomon's under no illusion that he or any of his people would be able to perfectly carry out the covenant that God had entered into with them. So he gets to the, the, the center, the, the meat of the privileged nationhood. Um, that is, the Israelites were more than just the political entity with, with land and with a standing army and territorial boundaries and a civil code. They were at bottom uh, a theocracy. Right? We're a democracy. The people have the final say. But Israel and you know the kingdom of God is a theocracy. God has the final say. So you know, we're to be governed by God's laws, by his veritable presence. Um, the reason for our existence or, or in the Israelites' existence was God wanted them to exist. God was pleased with their existence. And if that love was blocked or in jeopardy because of sin, right, Solomon asked God to make things right. In other words, uh, Solomon really loved his people. He showed that he, he loved his people because he knew that their joy and blessing and purpose were totally wrapped up in a you know, vibrant relationship with God. You know, without that, no matter how great the nation was among the table of nations or how much of, as a king he accomplished, it really would be meaningless right, without God. That was the love that Solomon uh, expressed, demonstrated, yeah, prayed for. For the people. Uh, in that vein, Solomon uh, stood in illustrious company. For example, the first leader of Israel, Moses, on several occasions put his own life on the line to ask God uh, and persuade him to stick with the Israelites despite their rebellion. And Moses did not want to be an individually great man or to be the father of a great nation on his own. Right? It was only meaningful to him if God's presence would be with the Israelites. Right? Therefore, he reminds God that Israel's significance lies solely in the fact that God was pleased with them and that he has shown his great power in their midst. Yeah, so Solomon, despite his own personal accomplishments and greatness, he's saying the same thing. You know, all that other stuff, even this temple, it can fall by the wayside so long as the relationship of the people and the nation to God is healthy. And that's Actually, the kind of love that drove Solomon, I think, to build the temple in the first place, that governed the people of God in the right way. And although later he does run into some major problems, um, I think this approach and perspective is one of the admirable highlights uh, of his uh, tenure. Yeah. How do we love others? How do you and I love others? What are the forms and manners that we undertake? You know, we can definitely try to improve the lives of our loved ones, right? We, can take care of them, we can provide more resources, give more attention, uh, bring about the kind of success that they might enjoy. We can cater to their needs and desires. We can put them first in terms of the priority of our energies and our service. But unless we want what we want God's best right for them, 
unless we want them to be in a strong relationship with God, I don't think we can really say that we love them, right, in the best way, in a biblical way, right? To really love others is to help them, to bring them closer to God. To truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ is to want God's best for them. And that often entails, you know, helping each other deal uh, with sin. You know, we have a lot of great kids um, in, in, in our church. And, uh, you know, we, Mona and I raised uh, kids as well. And there's always that looking for wisdom, looking for how to uh, raise the kids, you know, uh, in a proper way, and how to meet their needs, um, how to uh, encourage them and make them happy, but not spoil, you know, we, we all struggle with that. And and uh, we want to give them the best stuff and experiences. But, you know, I think as Christian parents, right, those of us that are going there, are, are experiencing it, or maybe you're thinking about the future, I think it, we really have to be sure that we show them the way to God. Show them the way to repentance and forgiveness. Show them the way to renew themselves um, to God, a life of faith, a life of service, and joy uh, in Christ. I was reading um, a kind of a, a newsletter written by uh, somebody, uh, a young man that you know we help uh, in his ministry, and he was talking about uh, his experiences in, in, in the new year, right? And um, he was saying that how he made some, uh, he called it practices. He, he committed himself to certain practices. He said, he thinks he's too much of a hipster to use the old person's resolutions. So I love resolutions, but he likes practices anyway. Uh, and uh, it was a lot about, you know, disciplines and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And he was saying that he was kind of patting himself on the back, like, and these are great, you know. And he was telling his mom um, about it, who's a friend of ours. And uh, mom, the mom kind of, you know, said in her own kind of straightforward, very, you know, kind of... Um, inquisitive way she was that's all well and good but are these practices uh, really uh, another expression of your need for self-sufficiency <laughs> desire for control and he said like wham you know mom mom got me again right and he began to think about how you know the practices were good but the way he was looking at it was indeed kind of fueling his own ambitions and his own strengths, right? So um, I was just, you know, kind of appreciating that, marveling at, at, at the mother and son relationship, uh, the spiritual context, right? And how that really kind of, uh, she was doing, she wasn't just kind of, you know, glorifying or, you know, just being so happy. I mean, it's great that her son is serving God and is, you know, is trying to, you know, lead his Christian life and Christian ministry um, effectively. But to really help him have a strong, real relationship with God, I thought that was you know, truly uh, the right kind of yeah, loving uh, ministry, uh, even as a parent. Now, David was not a good father overall, it seems. So much family drama, rivalry, incest, murder, yikes. But when David shares his vision of building the temple with Solomon, I think he, uh, uh, David is showing Solomon this kind of love, right? He, of all the things that David could pass on and leave and teach Solomon, he 
emphasizes near the end of his life, Solomon walking God's ways. Don't ever forsake God. Walk in God's ways, right? Build this temple and walk in God's ways. And, and, and I found that to be encouraging, right? Even though it was, um, yeah, David's life has, was, had a checkered history, right? And like I've been saying, the best relationship with God often entails the return to God in prayer and repentance. Right? Even, indeed, as Solomon makes the great function of the temple a time of reconciliation with God, so too should we be able to point to others and help them experience the forgiveness of God, the restoration of a broken relationship with him. All right, why don't we come to God in prayer? Think about a building of love.